Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you about the new Schmooze book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. Over the past 15 years or so, I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of couples, and I can't tell you the amount of times I look and say, why are you doing this? Do you understand what the relationship needs? Do you understand what your spouse is thinking? I put together this book to detail some of the really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, and the book has been extremely well-received. We sent out about a 1,000 pre-publication copies to Huston and college teachers, to marriage therapists, and the reviews have been really, really very heartening. If you'd like to get a copy, it's available on Amazon. It's available in your local bookstores. It's also available on theschmooze.com. If you purchase it on theschmooze.com, in addition to the hardcover book, you'll also get the audio book as well as the ebook as a free bonus. If you'd like to do that, please go to theschmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll greatly benefit from it. Thank you. In the beginning of this week's Parsha, there's, the Pasuk says, Ve'ela mishpotim ashatasim lifnehem. These are the statutes, these are the laws that you shall place lifnehem in front of them. The Dasakinim explains that there's a drush of the Chazal make lifnehem given in front of the Jewish people and the low lifneakum not in front of the Gentiles. That the Torah is made for the Jewish people, it's not made for the Goyim, it's the particular possession, the prized possession of the Jews. And then the Dazakana brings a fascinating little event as brought in the Medrash. He explains that if you look on the inside of any Chumish, you'll see Targum Unculus. Now, Targum Unculus is probably the single most accepted Targum, and it's written in the Tanaic time period. And the Targum was given a tremendous job. That job was to take the essence of the Torah and not just translate it but to take as much of the parish, as much as the understanding as possible, and put it into language that the common folk at the time who spoke Aramaic could speak. And Unculus became the single most accepted Targum. Well, Unculus was a tremendous Tamachachim and a tremendous Sadik. He did not begin that way. He began as a Gentile. As a matter of fact, he was the nephew of Andrianus Kaiser, Hadrian the Caesar, and this was right in the beginning of the powerful <coughs> legions of the Caesars, and he was nobility. Being the nephew of the Caesar meant he was powerful, he was tremendously wealthy, wealthy, and he was slated for Gedula. Whatever the case, at some point he became interested in Judaism, he began studying, he began learning, and he decided that he wanted to be a Magyar, he wanted to convert. But here was the problem. His uncle was... Andrianus. Hadrian was not exactly receptive to Jews. It was not exactly something his uncle would support. And he was deathly afraid of his uncle's wrath. So he came up with a plan. He went to his uncle and he said, Uncle, I'd like to go into business. I'd like to go into business. I'd like to ask your advice. His uncle says, My nephew, is it money that you seek? Is it money that you need? My treasure house is open to you. Whatever you need, please take. No, 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 uncle. It's not that I need money. I want to learn about people. I want to go abroad. I want to go into business so I could study people, so I could learn, so I could become more educated. Uncle, please give me advice. What schora, what type of merchandise should I engage in? Adrian looked at his nephew and said, Life is a cycle. Whatever's down goes up. Whatever down, whatever up goes down. Invest in merchandise that is now depressed. It'll come back up in value. 
And that's my advice to you. And with those words, Unculus left his uncle. Unculus then went to Eretz Yisrael, and he went to learn. He was not a Jew, he was a guy, and the Chacham said, it won't work. It won't work. It's not not going to work. So and what did Unculus do? He was Megayer. He got a Brismila. He sat and he learned, and he learned, and he learned, and he became phenomenally learned. He went to Rebbe Lazar and Rebbe Yeshua, and they saw him, and his face was different. He had gone to them years earlier as a guy, but it wasn't now just that he was a Jew. He looked vastly different. His face was different. They said immediately, one said to the other, Unculus Lama Torah. Unculus began asking them all kinds of questions, and they saw that he had become an Adam Gadol. Eventually, it was time for Unculus to go back to his uncle. You can hide forever. He goes back to his uncle, and he appears in front of his uncle, Caesar, and his uncle says, My nephew, your face is different. You look so different. Yes, uncle, I've engaged in learning Torah. But not just that, I became a Jew. I converted, and I got a bris milah. His uncle said, Why did you do that? Why did you do that? So he said, My, my uncle, I took your advice. You told me to invest in some type of merchandise that's currently depressed because it's going to rise up. I know of no nation that is as depressed, as oppressed as the Jewish people. And I know in the world to come they'll be elevated, they'll be exalted. I took your advice, my dear uncle. Hadrian was so impressed with his nephew's brilliance that he took his hand and he slapped Uncleus across the face. If you wanted to learn Torah, it was one thing. <clears throat> but why did you have to go become a Jew? Says Uncleus, Magid Liakov. It doesn't work. Torah won't work on a person who's not Nimal, a person who doesn't have Bismillah. Hashem gave the words of Torah to the Chukav Mishpat of Israel. <clears throat> it won't work by a guy. And with those words, the Medrash ends. Now, I'd like to ask what I consider the obvious question on this Medrash. Unculus is a brilliant individual. That's very clear, because to be able to take the entire Torah and define its essence and put it into words that are easily understood requires knowing Kol HaTorakula, and he was for generations the single translator, if you will, of the Torah. Clearly he was a tremendous, tremendous Tamachachim, which means that despite his diligence, he was clearly very, very bright. So we have a very, very bright man. We also see that he was extremely motivated. He had everything at his doorstep. He was the nephew of the Caesar. Power he had, opportunity he had. If he was looking for wealth, his uncle said to him, my treasure house is open in front of you. All of this meant nothing to him. He was willing to give up all of this. His only fear was how does he do it without his uncle killing him? So clearly he's very, very motivated. So here's the question. If we have a very bright man who is extremely motivated, why can't he learn Torah as a guy? When he came to the Chacham to learn, they didn't say to him, we're not going to teach you, and they didn't say, we don't want to. Ein divrei Torah makaimim el benimol. The words of Torah will not work. They won't go into someone who doesn't have a bismillah, who's not Jewish. Why is that true? A guy can learn math, he can learn science, he can learn chemistry. Why can't he learn Torah? And what was uncle's answer to his uncle? It wouldn't work. I couldn't possibly learn if I wasn't Jewish. The question is, why not? He's very bright and very motivated. Why couldn't he have learned? And to answer this question, I'd like to focus on something that is not spoken about enough. And that is that we Jews are extremely, extremely successful. 
I remember as a boy seeing the Encyclopedia Judaica. Many schools had it, some homes had it. Encyclopedia Judaica is a 26 English language encyclopedia of the accomplishments of the Jews. But you see, Encyclopedia Britannica is the Encyclopedia of Civilization's Accomplishments. And the encyclopedias that you'll see in every library you used to see were encyclopedias of mankind's accomplishments. But there was an entire 26-volume encyclopedia about the accomplishments of Jews. And for the years that they published it, from 1973 to 82, each year they came out with a thick yearbook of that year's accomplishments as a supplement. 25,000 articles, 2,200 contributors, 250 editors. And what I realized when I saw this as a little boy is that it's very clear that Jews are highly successful, great movers and shakers. And here's the strange part. If you look at the Jewish contribution to the cultural, scientific, and technological evolution of civilization, it's nothing short of astonishing whether it be in academics or politics, media or the professions, across every criteria, across every gamut from curing polio to discovering atomic energy, from Hollywood to Wall Street, the Jews have had an incredible influence on culture and human progress. But here's the odd part of it. It's every field. Find me a field and you'll find the movers and shakers in that field invariably were Jews. Art, theater, science, economy, politics, medical legal fields, technology, social movements. Every ism was begun or run by Jews. And if you look across every gamut, every facet of culture and accomplishments, academically, scientifically, economically, politically, militarily, the Jews excelled. And at a certain point, you got to scratch your head and say, gee golly, something doesn't add up. We're talking Freud, Marx, Einstein, Spinoza, Trotsky, Kafka, Most of the famous psychoanalysts have been Jews. Psychology as a field has been dominated by Jews. Political philosophers, everyone from Jerry Seinfeld to Albert Einstein. But I want to share with you just some examples to show you quite how odd this is. 20% of professors at leading universities are Jewish. 40% of partners in leading law firms in New York and Washington are Jewish. Forbes published its wealthiest America's list. Of the top ten, five are Jewish. We're talking names like Mark Zuckerberg, <clears throat> Oracle's Larry Ellison, Google co-founder Larry Page, Segri Brin fell low below. Forbes, this is what I really love, Forbes list of the 400 richest Americans. Of the 400 richest Americans, 139 are Jewish. And odder still, of the 100 wealthiest, 30 are Jewish. And it's not just very, very wealthy people. They study the ethnic income of households. There's a book written by a fellow who's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute to study the economic advantages of different groups. And he did a study using 100 as a U.S. average household, and here's what he found. Native Americans rated 60, meaning they're well below the average. Blacks on average was 62, Puerto Ricans were 63, Mexican 76, West Indian 94, Filipinos 99, U.S. average on whole was 100. Anglo-Saxon Germans were 107, Jews were 172, meaning the average Jew is earning far more, close to double 
and what the average other citizen of the United States of America is earning. But let's focus on something even odder. The Nobel Prize is one of the great measures of accomplishments. Since 1901, the greatest accomplishments in physics, chemistry, physiology, medicine, literature, economics, it's usually five or six different categories. The greatest accomplishments are recognized with this Nobel Prize, which is considered one of the most prestigious awards probably in mankind, certainly in modern history. Now, since the Nobel Prize began, there have been about 900 individuals who have been awarded Nobel Prize. In the 20th century of the United States of America, 30% of all U.S. Nobel Prizes were awarded to Jews. Okay? Between 1901 and 2006, 23% of all Nobel Prizes worldwide were awarded to Jews. In scientific fields like chemistry, economics, medicine, physics... Okay, now here's the point. How many Jews are there? Now, let's just do the math for a minute, right? 37% of the Nobel Prize's winners in the U.S. are Jewish. How many Jews are there in the U.S.? So, they argue maybe 7.5 million. How many people are there in the U.S.? Some 330, 340 million. We are about 2%. So, we're about 2% of the U.S. population, yet 37% of the Nobel Prize winners were Jews. But here's the other part. Let's talk worldwide. And worldwide, Jews have won 23% of Nobel Prizes. Now, what percentage of the worldwide population are the Jewish people? So right now, there are about 7.8 billion people on the planet. How many Jews worldwide are there? So they argue who you count as Jewish, somewhere between 14.5, 15 million is probably the highest number you're going to get. So here's the math. If there's 7.8 billion people in the world... If there were 78 million Jews, the Jews would constitute 1% of the population. But we're not 78 million. We're less than a quarter of that. That means we're less than one quarter of 1% of the world population, yet Jews won 23% of Nobel Prizes worldwide. Something doesn't add up. Something doesn't make sense. And if you look across different fields, from chemistry, economics, literature, throughout history you find that Jews are incredibly overrepresented. And let's take things that clearly aren't Jewish. Maybe you're telling me Jews are the people of the book. So chemistry and medicine, that's their deal. What about chess? There's nothing Jewish about chess. In a 1978 book, Rating of Chess Players, Past and Present, Professor Alfred Elpo numerically ranked 476 major tournament players from the 19th century onward. This was considered the ultimate measurement of who is who in chess. Chess. Of the fifty um, of the fifty-one highest-ranked players, half were Jewish. Half of the top fifty players in the world were Jewish. It's rather odd. By the way, Bobby Fischer, who is Jewish and a guns fine anti-Semite, he ranked the three. He ranked the five greatest chess players of all time. Three of them were Jewish. One was half Jewish. He again being one of them. But this is odd because there's nothing Jewish about chess. But if you look at things like computer science, if you look at linguistics, if you look at music, philosophy, physics, physiology, sociology, you find an inordinate amount of Jews who are winning prizes. Who are Here, a National Medal of Science, 37% of recipients are Jewish. 
There is members of the U.S. National Academy of Science. In medicine, 33% are Jewish. Physics, 40% are Jewish. Psychology, 40%. Economics, 40%. Mathematics, 50%. This is the U.S. National Academy of Science, the top brains, the top in, intelligentsia. Why do we have these kind of numbers? 33%, 40%, 50%? It makes no sense. And if you start studying what Jews win in terms of, of prizes and, and accomplishments, it really baffles the mind. But oddly enough, again, it's not just intellectual pursuits. How about inventors? <clears throat> How about the atomic bomb? How about the cure for polio? How about Robert Adler invented remote control? How about the Corvette uh, sports car? How about Emil Ber- Berliner, inventor of the gramophone? How about Sa- Samuel Bloom, inventor of LASIK surgery? Bloomberg vaccine for hepatitis B. How about uh, Frank Colton, antihistamines? How about the printed circuit board? How about drugs, medicine, Zervax, cellular technology, Flexistraw? If you look at the things that Jews, a long, long list of their inventions, you begin to realize something is really out of sorts. But let's deal with something that's clearly not Jewish. You'll tell me science, maybe. Medicine, maybe. Chess, okay, it's a brain thing. Okay, what about music? There is nothing inherently Jewish about music. Of the 100 leading virtuoso performers of the 20th century, approximately two-thirds of the violinists are Jewish. Half of the cellists are Jewish. 40% of the pianists are Jewish. These are the top leading virtuoso performers in music. What is Jewish about the piano, the cello, or the violin? And when you realize that half of the membership of the Songwriters Hall of Fame is Jewish, and when you realize that the list of Jewish-American writers is long as your arm, the list of Jewish-American artists, list of Jewish-American show business figures, names like Goldwyn and Louis Mayer, for you folks who remember Warner Brothers, Marx Brothers, Milton Berle, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, Joan Rivers, Gilda Ratner, 20th century civilization was shaped by Jewish people. Everything from Jewish hippies to social leaders. And if you look across the gamut, political leaders, civil rights leaders, there's a long, long list, all led by Jews. And here is the question. question is why? What's so special? What's so unique about the Jews? So let's try some answers and see if we can answer this question. And maybe you'll tell me Jews are smart. That's why. Uh, you see that? Give a good Jewish head an opportunity, and he'll accomplish. Now, it is true. Jews are smart, and we have, on average, a, a, th- a third of, or to a standard deviation above the standard IQ, meaning, on average, it's true that Jews are typically smarter than the average bear, but there are plenty of smart people who don't amount for much, and there are plenty and plenty of smart Gentiles who are smart or smarter than Jewish people. So, smarts clearly isn't the answer. Maybe you're telling education with the people of the book, right? Now, again, it is true. On whole, the Jewish people are far more educated than the Gentile counterpart. More than twice the national average of undergraduate degrees, more than four times the national average of graduate degrees. Okay, but first of all, why is that? But more than that, there's a famous line said by the dean of Harvard. He said something to the extent of, it's my A and B students who give me nachas, he didn't use the word nachas, but give me a sense of pride, but it's my C and D students who fund the endowments. Meaning business smarts is not book smarts. And why is it that Jews are so, so successful in business? 
to the extent that they lead the Forbes list, five out of the top ten. And if you look across the world, it's a phenomena that makes no sense. But here's the other part of it. 90% of our Jewish people are utterly, totally, completely assimilated. Meaning they're as Yankee as the Yankees, as American as American. They're not Jewishly cultured. For the vast majority of our people, their Jewishness at best consists of eating a matzah ball on Passover and lighting electric menorah if they do that. So what is it? They're not brought up in a yeshiva. They're not brought up in a frum home where there's a certain perspective on life and a certain way. They're exactly the same as any Gentile they live in. If you grow across America, 90% of our people, you will not be able to distinguish whether they're Gentile or Jewish other than the fact somehow you find out, oh, he's also Jewish? So here's the question. Why is it that if the typical American is indistinguishable from the typical Jew, why are the Jews so successful across every category, across every measurement? And to put the question into focus, I'll share with you the line that I love. The Italians came to this country, formed the mob. The Irish came to this country, they became cops and drunks. The Jews came to this country and took over every institution known to civilization. And the question is, gee golly, why? Would you like to know the answer to this question? <clears throat> we say it every single Motzei Shabbos. Hamavdil min kodesh l'chol Hashem. You distinguish between holy and secular. Ben or l'choshech, between light and darkness. Ben Yisrael l'amin, between the Jew and the Gentile. Hashem, you made this distinction. Am segula. A Jew has a unique neshama. We are Hashem's chosen people. And there are two elements to that. The neshama of a Jew is vastly different than the neshama of a Gentile. A Gentile has an opportunity to earn Olam Haba. If he keeps seven mitzvahs b'nei Noach, he has an opportunity, but he's nowhere near a Jew. A Jew starts out having a chilek in Olam Haba, and the most that a Gentile can be, as the Derek Shem explains, is somehow <clears throat> sort of on the coattails of a Jew. The Jew has a vastly different neshama, a vastly different place in the world. He is vastly different, and even more than that, he's Hashem's chosen people. Hashem, you chose us from all nations. The Chavaz Vavaz explains that when Hashem wants to bring something to the world, He wants His chosen nation to be the one to bring it. Whether it's a scientific invention, whether it's a technological concept, whether it's success in any endeavor, Hashem wants His people. The Jews' neshama wants to grow, wants to accomplish. He has that inner striving, and Hashem orchestrates it, that He's the one on the leading front. He's the one who does it. Do you know why Jews are so accomplished, why they're so successful? There are two dimensions, a unique soul, and they're God's people. And those two, Hashem orchestrates, that the Jews are at the forefront of every scientific, every economic, every advancement in civilization. Now, with that being said, I'd like to repeat something that I've said recently, but it bears hearing again. Time magazine had their big challenge. Every year they put a man on the cover, the man of the year, but it was 1999, and it was coming up the new millennium, and they wanted to have the man of a century. 
So they had the meeting of the board of editors, who was going to be the man of century, and they made it sort of like a parlor game. They asked all the editors to contribute who was the single human being who had the greatest influence on civilization in the 20th century. The editors were given a few weeks, they came back, and here was the problem. Almost unanimously, the editors agreed that the single individual had the greatest influence on civilization was a man named Adolf Hitler. However, putting Adolf Hitler's picture on the front of Time magazine was not going to sell many magazines, so they sent the editors back with a revised game. Who was the single individual who had the greatest positive influence on West, on civilization in the 20th century? And the editors voted, and they came back with the name Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, a Jewish boy, we quell, we shep naches, ah, what a Jewish boy. Now, here's an interesting observation. Albert Einstein clearly is a very, was a very accomplished individual. Um, he was even offered to be the president of Israel. He refused that position. But here's my question. Albert Einstein, man of the century, where is he today? Where is he right now? So, I'd like to share with you, it's a Mishnah. The Mishnah says, Kol Yisrael Yeshlam Every Jew has a chelik in Olam Abba. And it quotes a Pasuk. But, the Mishnah also says, but these are the ones who don't have a chelik in Olam Abba. <clears throat> one who says, there's no Tchiyas Amesim in the Torah. One who says, no Torah Mishamayim. One who's an Apikoris. These are Jews who have no portion in the world to come. Now let me quote to you some of Einstein's words. I believe in Spinoza's God who reveals himself in the ordinary harmony of what exists, not in a God who concerns himself with the fates and actions of human beings. Many times Einstein denied God's involvement and denied God's presence, denied a God in any sense that we call Hashem Wilokim. Now here's the problem. He was Jewish. And for a while, a short while, he was even keeping religion. Now he was brought up in the bastion of anti-Semitism, Berlin, of all places, Germany, um, and he had a very, very atheistic upbringing, but somehow around his bar mitzvah age, he became interested in, and he kept kosher for a while, and apparently some Shabbos, but here's the point. He was openly and overtly an apikoris. Now, I don't know where he is exactly, maybe he'll tell me he's Tinek Shanishba, I don't know, but one thing for sure, I guarantee he's not in the front row. How do I know that? Because ask a cheder child, where is Hashem? And the cheder child will tell you, Hashem is here. You only become in the world to come what you accomplished, what you did, how much you changed yourself, how much you grow, how much you were involved in Hashem's Torah, how many mitzvahs you accomplished. So here's my question. How do we have such a wide disparity? How do we have Time Magazine calling this man the man of the century, and it's unlikely he's even in Gan Eden at all, and if he is, it's in the way, way, way back bleacher section. How could there be such a wide disparity? And the answer to that is that modern man makes one mistake. You see, Christopher Columbus discovered America. God invented America. What modern man mistakenly assumes is, I invented atomic theory. I invented a nuclear force. Even though he says the words, I uncovered, what he assumes is, I am the master of the ship. And what he fails to realize is that he has uncovered but a tiny, tiny sliver 
of the vast wisdom that Hashem put into every facet of this world. Mankind discovers that which God invented, created, maintains at any given moment. And modern man's big mistake is, we've replaced God. We used to need God, but now we don't need God. We have modern medicine, we have technology, we have advancements, we don't need God. And the silly man has really fallen off the deep end. Because all you've done is uncovered but a tiny sliver of a sliver of the vast wisdom of God. And what you think you're doing is you think that God is good for the big deal things. You know, God at best if he can create things like a a giraffe and an elephant maybe, but the real, you know, bridges and tunnels, come on, we need man for that. God can't do that. The real heavy lifting, we need man for that. God may be okay with like cosmos and stuff like stars and gravity and, and, and nuclear force, but... When it comes to real big deal stuff like microwave ovens, eh, come on, we need man for that. And what modern man fails to realize is that he's dealing with the minutia of the minutia. And really, here's the point. All of the scientific accomplishments we mentioned above, all the accomplishments in music and winning Nobel Prizes, they're all in the cheapest currency imaginable. Hashem did not create the world for this world. Hashem didn't put us here for our purpose here. As a Jew, we're slated to grow. But growth is something that requires deep, deep understanding. You see, we assume that growth is natural. But I'd like to share with you, growth is highly unnatural. There's nothing that you experience in this world that grows. It's true. You put a seed in the ground and up comes a tree. You have an egg, it hatches, and it becomes a chick which grows into a big chicken. But really, all that's happening is there are programmed reactions and things that are slated, but nothing changes. It was pre-programmed, pre-designed, and it goes through exactly the kitten grows into a cat because that's the programming. A tree doesn't change, and the seed will develop, but there's programming written. In the entire cosmos, in the entire universe, in everything in creation, there's only one creation that has the capacity to choose, and that is man. And man is the only one who has the capacity to grow. You see, who I am for eternity is based on one thing. There's a stimulus, there's a response. Between the stimulus and the response is a choice. The choice that I make. Here's the stimulus, here's my response. There's a nanosecond, a very short second of time between the stimulus and the response, choosing the right choice at that moment again and again and again, is what shapes my growth, what makes me different. But I will be either vastly, phenomenally great, or I'll be diminutive, but I'm ever-changing. But those changes are not in the size of my biceps, not in the speed of my running. Those changes are within me. I, the one inside, and I, the soul, am constantly changing, constantly growing, or constantly shrinking. Nothing in the material world changes. Nothing in the spiritual world changes. Man and man alone can change. And there's one more step. Rocket fuel for the soul is what Hashem gave us. You see, growth requires energy. Growth requires fundamental strength. And the single greatest nutrient for the neshama is Torah. Limana Torah, learning Torah, is literally rocket fuel for the soul. I'm the one inside, I have vastly different natures and different pulling. I have a Nefesh Bahami, a Nefesh Sikhli, an animal soul, and pure neshama, and I'm pulled. 
the process of learning is the greatest nutrient for the soul. It makes my soul shine. It empowers it. It brings it to the fore. And I believe that's exactly the answer to Unculus. You know what the Chum said to him? It won't work. A Jew has a unique soul. <clears throat> Torah is the nutrient for the soul of a Jew. It doesn't work. It won't nourish the... Why won't it work on a guy? A guy can learn science. He can learn chemistry. <clears throat> he can learn deep concepts. But the process of learning Torah is a holy pursuit. The soul of a Jew is uniquely suited for it. And the rocket fuel for the soul is rocket fuel for the Jewish soul. But it won't work on a guy's soul. And that's exactly what Nechachamim <clears throat> was saying to Unkelis. It's not going to work. It's not that you're not bright enough. You could be brilliant. And it's not you're not motivated. You could be tremendously motivated. It's not going to penetrate. It's not going to do its job. Can you learn a tosis? Maybe. <clears throat> Can you learn a Hashem? Maybe. But it's not going to have the impact, not going to have the effect, because your soul isn't ready. Once he was Magyar, once he converted, his soul changed, and then that soul was ready, and that soul was receptive, and that soul could grow. And I think there's a tremendous lesson for us, and that is, number one, the receptivity that we have for growth. We were put on a planet for one thing, not to make money, not to win prizes in mathematics or Nobel Prizes, and not to write songs to become famous. We're put here to be challenged to grow, to change the essence of me. Growth is within my DNA. <clears throat> growth is what I was put here for. But growth is very challenging. Hashem is very, very good at doing that which Hashem does. And Hashem put us in an exact equilibrium, perfect balance, where I could just as easily squander my existence or rise to the stars. I could just as easily wallow in the mud or climb up to the heights. But it's a perfect balance. And the challenges of life are always present, always there. And what a Jew needs to be constantly involved in is Limit Torah. The process of learning, engaging, putting my brain on, on, and the deeper the better, the more involved, the more intricate, the more deep, the more closely I'm touching Hashem's wisdom and Hashem's word, what that does is it lights up my soul. It gives my neshama empowerment. It gives me light. It changes the balance and allows me to steig, allows me to grow. And that's what Unkelis was being told. <clears throat> a guy has a limited capacity. Can you purchase your world to come? You can. There are many Gentiles who make it into the world to come. The Rambam tells us, if you keep seven mitzvah because Hashem said to, you have a portion of the world to come. But you'll never reach the inner sanctum. You'll never reach true greatness. And that's limited to the soul of a Jew. A Jew has a unique soul, and the Torah is uniquely suited to furnish the energy, to supply the nourishment, to put him on fire. Rav Gorelik once asked an interesting question, I've heard it asked by others, and that is, we know the famous Medrash, that the baby learns the entire Torah, the entire Torah in its mother's womb, then the Malachim touches it on the lip, and the baby forgets the whole Torah. So Rav Gorelik Zatzal wants to ask, so why bother the Malach to teach the baby? The baby's going to forget it anyway, right? The Malach teaches the baby the entire Torah, and then touches the baby on the lip, the baby comes out and forgets the whole Torah. Why waste time teaching the baby Torah? Rav Gorelik answered, you ever see a kid who's talented pick up a musical instrument? He picks up the violin, he picks up the trumpet, and it's music, it's beautiful. And you watch a kid who's not talented, listen to him play the violin, it's scratchy and screechy and grates on your nerves. Watch a kid play the trumpet when he's not musically inclined, and it's, ooh. 
The reason why the Malach teaches the baby the entire Torah is because we have been given a natural predisposition towards learning. We have a natural musical ability towards Limerat Torah. <clears throat> we learned it all already. It's been processed. We've been there. And when you relearn something that you learned already, it's much easier. You're much, it just works. You're just familiar with it. It's just sort of natural. Hashem had the Malach teach every one of us the entire Torah so that we should be a natural at it. And I think what this Chazal tells us is a tremendous yesod. We are slated for growth. The fuel for that is Limit Torah. And without it, there's no nothing else that's going to provide that nourishment. And when you provide that nourishment, you grow, you accomplish, you change. And I think this Chazal is eye-opening. When you see Jews succeed in every facet of life, you have to look and you have to say, gee golly, why? And what you see Jews succeeding at is every single element. And read the Encyclopedia Judaica. Look, see the different areas. Famous Jews, influential Jews, powerful Jews, rich Jews, accomplished Jews in every single area. Cultural, scientific, technological. And at some point you've got to say, what's pshat? What's going on? And what you're looking at is the neshama of a Jew and Hashem's chosen nation. And But those successes are in the miniature world that we live in. Hashem didn't create us for this world, and Hashem doesn't need us to build bridges and build tunnels. Hashem is quite capable of doing all that and more. Hashem put us in this world for one reason, to grow and accomplish, to change the essence of me. Not to change the world, to change me, or to change the world vis-a-vis itself, growing and accomplishing, serving Hashem. And when you understand that, you understand that the Jew is slated for greatness. Read about rich Jews, read about successful Jews, read about funny Jews, read about Jews accomplishing in all areas, and you see the greatness of your neshama. And you see how much Hashem wants you to be at the forefront. Hashem wants every success to go to His people, even in the trinkets, even in the little things that don't matter, how much more so in that which really matters, how much more so you have a neshama that's slated to grow in what it's really set to accomplish, and how much more so when you have Limit Torah, which furnishes the energy, you have an Hashemah that's pure and holy, Hashem is guiding you to growth, and you have the ultimate spiritual nourishment, you have to use it, you have to accomplish it. And I want to close with one last observation. It's a tefillah we say three times a day. Aleinu l'shabeach. It is upon us to sing praise, Ladona kol, to the master of the universe. Lases gedulal yotzevereshis, to give greatness to the one who created creation. What do we praise Hashem for? What do we thank Hashem for? Shlo asanu artsos. Hashem, you didn't make us like the Gentiles of the world in which we live. I'm unique. I'm distinct. When I walk down the street, when I sit down in base marriage, when I sit at home at my dining room table, I am unique. I have a neshama that's vastly different than a Gentile. I have Hashem guiding me and leading me to greatness. And I have the Torah, which is the ultimate spiritual nourishment. It's the guidebook, but much more than the mere guidebook, it's the empowerment. I have all of this, and when I recognize my potential greatness, and I recognize how much Hashem wants my success, and I recognize I have the tools to do it, I sing out praise to Hashem. Hashem, you made us different like the, the Gentiles. Hashem, I can't thank you enough. That is the perspective that we're supposed to have, and I believe that's what this Chazal teaches us. And now I'd like to open the, question, the floor to questions, thoughts, observation. It could be on this topic, any topic. Please feel free to raise your hands. I'd much rather take hands raised, but if not...
Um, okay, let me look at, uh, it's not a question, but let's see. When Rebbe mentioned about the Mount of Jews, it reminds me of a joke. Um, reminds me, I'm sorry, of a joke. And two men were at a beach in Florida, and man one asked man two, if there are only seven million Jews and a few hundred million Chinese in the world, then why, why when you look at the beach, don't you see one Chinese? Um, okay, I get it. I get it. Okay, by the way, it's not a couple hundred million. It's 1.56 billion. The amount of Chinese people, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of people there in China. Okay, anyway, um, in any case, yes, okay. But if anyone has questions, please feel free to ask questions. If you're too shy to raise your hand, you can type them in. Um, and before I forget, I do want to mention two things. One is the upcoming Shabbaton. We have a Shabbaton coming uh, February 25th through 26th. It is a Shabbaton on marriage. If you'd like to join, it's in Muncie in the Crown Plaza Hotel. Uh, if you'd like more information about it, yourhomeyourhaven.org. I'll be one of the speakers. Rabbi Ruven Epstein will be there, along as well as Rabbi Don Kranzer. It's focused on marriage, and it's a good opportunity to enjoy a beautiful Shabbat and at the same time learn different techniques, concepts that apply to marriage. If you're interested in details, please go to yourhomeyourhaven.org. And if you have not gotten a copy of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, please go to the schmooze.com. You can get it in the swarm stores, you can get it on Amazon, but if you go to the schmooze.com, you'll also get free of charge, you'll also get the audiobook, ebook, as well as the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp as a bonus. Go to the schmooze.com, T H E S H M U Z dot com. Okay, let me uh, look at a question over here. Again, please feel free to raise your hand if you have questions. Or you can type them in. question is, when do you think that COVID-19 restriction will be going to be taken down? It doesn't seem like they're coming up with a new vaccine, only giving a booster, and the first booster really didn't do it. Um, if I were a Novi, um, I could answer that question. I'll give you an Einstein quote. Um, I, hate to be, I hate to be negative, and I hate to be uh, facetious, and I hate to be cynical, but sometimes I can't resist Supposedly Einstein said, there are two things that I think of as infinite. One is man's capacity for stupidity, and the other is space. And space, I'm not so sure if it's infinite. What am I going to tell you? I cannot tell you that this is being handled intelligently or well. I cannot tell you that I agree with it. I can't tell you that a mask does anything to stop transmission of COVID-19. I can't tell you that there's any danger of Omicron really in a very real sense. It sounds a lot less destructive and damaging than the flu. I'm not a doctor, and I'm not making a public policy statement, but I happen to agree with you. And um, and my my brother got his fourth, lives in Israel, got his fourth vaccine. His wife had only three, so she got COVID recently. Um, yeah. Okay. What can I tell you? It doesn't prevent COVID. What does it do? I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I, I can't answer um, certain questions are way way above my capacity. Um, okay. If you have a question, please feel free to raise your hand. Raymond, you have the floor. Ramon? Hi, Rabbi. Hi, yeah. Hi, Hi, Rabbi. Hi. Why, if, if the Torah is for us, why it's so difficult for me to study sometimes? I hear the question. Yeah, I understand exactly the question. If the Torah, if, my, if I'm built to, to grow, and the Torah is built for me, and I learned the whole Torah in my mother's stomach already, why is it so difficult to learn? So the answer is because there has to be an even playing field. You see, if we were all pulled to learn Torah, and it would be natural, 
And we're learning all day, there'd be no free will left. Why? Because it's rocket fuel for the soul. I'd be empowered, I'd be growing, I'd be st- and there'd be no free will. There has to be challenges on every step of the way. And the biggest challenge is learning, because learning has the greatest impact, and therefore it has to be the greatest challenge. Because it's the greatest influence and the greatest spiritual nourishment, it's the greatest fight that the Yitzhara, the Sun, is going to put up against it, and it is very difficult to learn. Now, when you get into learning, you enjoy it, and the better you, the better your skills are, and the more you understand you're doing, the more enjoyable it is, and the more holy you become, the more ruchni spiritually you become, the easier it is. But it's always a battle, and it's always difficult. And even if you're super into learning, it's still you got to push, and you got to because it is a challenge. And we're put here for one reason: to be challenged, to choose correctly under pressure, make the right choices. And one of those choices is limanator is learning. Okay. Yeah, Rabbi. Yeah, Rabbi. But uh, when. But why is it so hard? <laughs> You're good. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. But when we we study the the bull and some things that don't apply to grow, that changes too. Yeah. And not only that, and there are parts of the Torah that will never happen in Irani Dachas. Um, there are a number of parts of the Torah that never ha- the Gemara says never happened, never will happen. Ben Sora Mora. Right, the the boy who uh, begins going off the way. The Gemara says it never happened and never will happen. Why does Hashem write that part in the Torah for us to learn the concepts? For us to learn, because you see, Hashem took His wisdom and invested it in things in this world. Some of them we see the application of which some we don't understand the application, but it, it's nourishment for the soul. It empowers your neshama and it has effect on you whether you understand the application or not. And by the way, there are many things. You can learn Hilchah Shabbos for a long time, and it may have no application. You may have, never have those cases happen. But regardless, <clears throat> exactly, learning, and the deeper, the more involved, the more your brain is forced to think, the more <clears throat> that fuels your soul. Thank you, Rabbi. Okay, so, my uh, pleasure. Okay, thank you. Okay, let me just unmute. Again, please feel free to ask a question. You can raise your hand if you like. If you're shy, you can type in the question. Um, okay, once again, if you're not getting a copy of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, please go online, go to shmins.com and get it. Um, I hope to see you. I'll announce next week whether there will be a Schmooze Live or not. I'm not 100% sure. I will <coughs> announce it. But uh, please feel free, anytime during the week, you could type in questions, send it into Rebbe, R-E-B-B-E, at theshmooze.com. T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z dot com. I thank you very much, and I wish you a good Shabbos. Thank you.